Well, good evening. Welcome to seminary class, especially tonight. All right. Well, we, we had the pleasure of going through several nights of a doctrinal study, kind of basic doctrines of the church. And if you remember, we kind of dealt with theology in general, study of God, what does that mean, and kind of unpacked it for a Sunday or two. And then we talked about the Scripture, and that was kind of an in-depth study, thinking of the Scriptures. And so really, after you do the doctrine of Scripture, you move to the doctrine of God, or what's often referred to as theology proper, and that's to think about uh, who our God is, or we may say the Christian God, correct? Which is the only God that exists. So I've provided for you a handout that we will go through in a, in a few moments. And I say seminary class because anytime you deal with arguments for the existence of God that are formed outside of the Bible, then it takes a little bit of intellectual prowess to think about these. And uh, my favorite argument for the existence of God is the Bible, right? But there are some legitimate good arguments for the existence of God that we'll talk about tonight. And then we're going to talk about the Trinity. And a few of you are going to stand up kind of impromptu and explain the Trinity to us. I will, pick, I will choose you later. Uh, no, I'm kidding. So on your handout, Theology Proper, Today, we're going to primarily deal with does God exist and then discuss the Trinity part of what God is like. And then next week, we'll deal with incommunicable and communicable attributes and the names of God. I, don't, I would like to allow you a little bit of time. and I know our ladies have a teaching thing tonight after church at 630 or as quick as they can start it. So I'm going to try to get you out of here and give you an opportunity to ask questions. So let's... Consider two things. Does God exist? And what is he like? Okay? Now, for the does God exist, let's go all the way back to the first confessional by the Israelites and the Hebrew people called the Shema or Shema that is found in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And this helps us understand what every Hebrew worshiper believed about Yahweh. Okay? Chapter 6, verse 1. Now this is the commandment, the, Lord, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and, all your, you and your son and your son's sons, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may be multiply greatly, as the Lord the God of your fathers has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Now verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. This is what it meant to be a worshiper of the one true God. The actual literal translation is Yahweh, our Elohim, is one. That's the literal word-for-word -word Hebrew. Yahweh, our Elohim, mentioning the plurality. That's interesting, right? Yahweh, our Elohim, is one. The key verse is verse 4. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. It affirms the unity but also the singularity of God. Now, Jonah chapter 4, interesting book, right? Here's that uh, rebellious one-way prophet that God turned around, right? Disobedient prophet of the Lord. We see Jonah's disobedience in chapter 1, his prayer, then his obedience to the Lord, and then chapter 4, he's whining, like a lot of preachers do, right? Chapter 4. But in the context of this, we learn so much about what our God is like. Chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? 
That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew, listen to this, that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, Lord, O Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry? So we know the context of that. But I just bring that out to let you see some of the incredible attributes of our God that Jonah thought about in regard to the fact that God Almighty actually uh, relented of his anger or his, the fact that he was going to destroy the Ninevites and yet actually sent revival. We look into the missionary heart of God, and so we look at his attributes. So, now, I want you to take your hand out and consider the doctrine of God. Does everybody have one? Or at least able to see a, a copy of one? Again, we have some questions to consider. Does he exist, and what is he like? Now, when we come to the Holy Word of God, the Bible, the Bible never seeks to prove that God exists. Did y'all know that? There's not a verse of scripture where you're reading along and all of a sudden it says, in case you're wanting to figure this out, here's a verse or here's an explanation of the fact that God exists. The fact is, the Bible takes God's existence as a given. It's assumed. It's, it's a given. It starts with the assumption and principle that there is a God. And in fact, Paul in Romans 1 and 2 states that the knowledge of God is written on our hearts in the terms of our conscience and by God's creation, by the invisible attributes of God that are made manifest, mankind actually has a knowledge that God exists. And think about how strong that is. The fact that God says that creation speaks of my existence, did you know that it makes every man accountable? So Romans 1 would teach us that God is totally just in sending individuals to hell simply by the fact that he created the worlds. Created the world. That's strong, isn't it? So I like our Genesis uh, answers in Genesis material because it grounds everything in the creation narrative and it moves you through the scriptures for you to understand how important it is for you to believe that God exists and that he created everything that we know. So... We see the evidence and sense the eternal witness that we have a supreme being that we are accountable to. So the Bible does not seek to defend the existence of God or argue for it. It simply starts with it. It starts in the beginning God. And it goes from there. So yet in the church and outside the church, there have been certain arguments used to defend the existence of God. We may call these arguments for the reasonableness of the existence of God. So note the left side of your chart. You have provided for you four classic arguments for the existence of God. Teleological, moral, cosmological, and ontological argument. And again, number five is my favorite. It's the biblical argument for the existence of God or the special revelation of the Christ event. But these arguments have been used philosophically for years and years and years and years. And they're, they're probably uh, items or uh, speaking of these arguments for the existence of God are probably ones that you saw in your philosophy class if you ever took philosophy in college or maybe even high school if you were fortunate. Philosophy is a good thing to take, right? If you understand it in relation to the Bible, which uh, is the overriding principle in anything, but in our context, uh, again, we would add the biblical argument of divine revelation. Now, let's dispatch one of them for the sake of time, and that's the ontological argument. And you will probably be glad that I did, because this one is very, very complex. Anselm, who lived between 1033 and 1109, argued that God is that being which is which no greater can be conceived. And his point was, if he is the greatest being of necessity, if he is the greatest being, then by necessity his being must be there, or he is not the greatest being. Is anybody thoroughly confused? Raise your hand. In other words, the greatest being that doesn't exist would not be the greatest being. 
His greatness entails the reality of his existence. Now that may sound like a card trick to you. But I can kind of track with him. But the issue is, I, I think that one is so kind of complex, ontological argument, uh, essence, that we, uh, we'd probably be better off to, to skip that one for the sake of argument. Now, let's look at the other ones just for a moment that we have here. And I'm going to go in a little different order. Let me talk to you about the cosmological argument first. Again, the Bible never attempts to prove God's existence. God's existence is assumed, although there are good arguments out there outside the Bible for it. They provide us with evidence and reason to believe that God exists. And I think those evidences and arguments cumulatively taken together provide sufficient reason to compel us to believe. And I say that to you because one of these arguments is the very one that opened the eyes of C.S. Lewis and moved him from an agnostic to be open to hearing the gospel, and then he was saved. And so it's important to think about these because obviously they have some uh, legitimacy to them. The first is the cosmological argument. It's the argument from creation or causality. In other words, there had to be something behind all this that caused it. Y'all, are you listening? There has to be something behind all of it. To think that matter is eternal is just goofy. Uh, and, and really, that's your only choice if you don't believe in creationism or divine creation. You have to believe that something had to be eternal, either God or matter. And so, cosmologically, the argument would be that the universe had a beginning. And the scientific evidence of the second law of thermodynamics speaks of that. Why is that the case? Because something doesn't move from cold to hot. You know, when you see something created, then it's moving toward going away or dissipating. Uh, such as the Bible teaches that the, this world will come to an end. Right? Now, it's not happening through global warming. Uh, that's just not going to take place. It's going to happen because God says it's time for it to happen. If he, he can use whatever he wants to use, but the fact is, he's going to release the elements according to 1 and 2 Peter, and God will destroy this known world. And you say, well, it could be a nuclear weapon. Why? If you want to argue that, go for it, but God's going to be behind it, right? God's going to end the world and make a new one. So, the philosophical reasoning is that infinite regress is impossible. You're not going to move infinitely from cold to creation. It, it, that, that can't happen, logically, because of scientific argument. Number two, anything that has a beginning must have an adequate cause. And number three, therefore the universe was caused by something, and that cause is God. Right? Uh, Hebrews uh, 11. You know the classic, without faith it is impossible to please God. But look at how chapter 11 actually starts Hebrews 11 now faith is the assurance of things hoped for or the substance of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen for by it the people of old received their commendation verse 3 by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of the things that are visible there had to be a cause and chapter 11, verse 3 says that we know so by faith, but not only by faith, but by actuality. This is very realistic. Uh, the cosmological argument has a lot of validity to it because there has to be causality. Something has to be behind what we see in this world. So that's the cosmological argument. And that is an argument, according to your chart, from creation. God made it ex nihilo, which means out of nothing. God spoke all things by his word out of nothing. And I would tell you that all three persons of the Trinity were all involved because the Bible tells us that they were. So our option is, option one, nothing affect world. Or, you don't have this on your sheet, do you? Okay. Or you've got option two, something eternal created the world. So you've got the universe as a beginning or no beginning, and then you have it caused 
uh, are not caused or you have it not personal or personal. I don't know about what you think, but I think the universe has a beginning, it was caused, and it was a personal being that caused the universe. Right? That's really your only option when it comes to cause and effect or universe. So, something was eternal. Either matter or chance or God. Do you know that we could not even add up the possibility of chance creating this world? It would be an impossibility that chance created the world and caused humanity uh, on this earth. It would be an impossibility. So I'm going with the eternal God when it comes to cosmological argument. Okay? The second one would be the moral argument. And this is the one that got a hold to C.S. Lewis. He began to think about animals, whether it be a wolf or a lion or a bear. And their response to good and bad was not the same as a human's response to good and bad or good and evil. So the first thing we would think about in the flow of the moral argument is that all men are conscious of an objective moral law. Here's the question. Where did that come from? I mean, even uh, Ted Bundy will have a sense or would have a sense that certain things were wrong or uh, any murderer or Hitler or anybody out there, there's a sense where you've got to draw the line at some point. What stopped him from going this way or, or that way, it has to do with objective moral law. And where did that come from? Well, Romans 1 will tell us it came from our God. Romans 1 and 2 would tell us that that's an eternal witness of the fact that God exists and it's written on our hearts and minds. Number two, moral law implies a moral lawgiver. If there is morality... Where did it come from? Well, the moral argument would say that there's a moral law giver, i.e. something written on stones we call the Ten Commandments. So that's an example of a moral law giver. Therefore, there must be a moral law giver. Uh, for scriptural support, Romans chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, right? Think of that. They're not Hebrews who were given the law of Moses. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even accuse them. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men in Jesus Christ. So, just a reminder in Romans of that aspect of the moral law. And again, C.S. Lewis, Lewis was an agnostic. And it moved him from being an agnostic to a theist, where he believed that God must therefore exist. And then it was after he believed in theism that he was converted to Christ a little later on. So that's uh, pretty incredible. So cosmological, moral, and then finally, teleological argument. This is an argument from design. And as a matter of fact, Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas would have promoted this particular belief. Uh, order and useful arrangement in a system is what this implies. Function with intention. If something was created functionally and orderly, and useful, then it implies intelligence behind what was created. So we would call that purpose and design, or there has to be a designer behind the design of the universe. Telos, design, meaning teleological argument. Does that make sense? Uh, number two, the universe is characterized by intricate design. You know, folks, if the earth was positioned any closer to the sun, we would roast any further away from the sun, we would freeze to death. That did not happen from primordial soup. That did not happen by chance and by accident. The world, because it rotates on its axis and does exactly what God has it to do for the changing of the seasons. and It's, just, it's amazing if we were to go through that. Have you ever read about your eye? The intricate design of an eyeball? And you think that that came from matter. It did not come from eternal matter, it came from eternal God. Uh, 
who created mankind. So therefore, the universe has a designer. Some of you may remember William Paley, which is called Paley's Watchmaker. Y'all remember that? Well, basically what that is is this. An instrument such as a watch, which functions with organized complexity, naturally implies a watchmaker, an intelligence to both design and construct the watch. Living organisms and the universe in general function with a greater degree of organized complexity than does a watch. It is equally necessary that there be a designer and builder of our universe. You know, several years ago in Pennsylvania, uh, and I think maybe in Hawaii, uh, locals were fighting the school boards in order to teach what's called ID movement. That's called intelligent design. They were just saying this. If you're going to teach evolution and uh, uh, species or evolutionary processes or whatever you're going to do, we're just asking you to teach intelligent design as well. Because there's no way we have this universe unless there was intelligent design. I-D. And so you know that probably caused some concerns. But if you take a watch and you say, well, you know what? That thing is so complex, somebody, somebody had to make that watch. Have you ever studied what's involved in one of your cells? Brother Andy, right? Or the DNA? Folks, that kind of complexity lends us to believe, without even thinking about the Word of God, that there had to be intelligent design behind this world that we live in. So, bottom line, if you could demonstrate to me tomorrow that Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead and that his body rotted away in some Judean tomb and there's nothing but dust left today, I still could not become an atheist. Now, I might be an agnostic. I might say something had to happen for this whole thing to be here, but it was certainly not what these scientific nitwits tell us. Right? It doesn't make any sense to argue for the eternality of matter. Did random mutation and random chance in time create this kind of complex universe? Can natural selection give us this kind of organized world? I would just not be sure how it all began, but I think the ultimate clincher is what the Word of God has to say to us. Amen? And uh, let me just take a few moments to, to walk down through a few things, and you can make some notes uh, regarding... That biblical argument uh, of creation. All right. All right. No, I think I'm going to go on. Are y'all good? Y'all have any questions on that? Now, I can give you tons of biblical support, such as 11, Hebrews 11, uh, Genesis 1. Is everybody good with the biblical argument that God created the world? Okay, so let me run, let me go now to the Trinity which would save us more time, because I took more time on that one than I thought I would. But y'all know me, right? That certainly takes place around here a lot. All right, let's talk about the Trinity for a moment. B.B. Warfield said, there is, only one, uh, there's on, there is one and only and true. There is one only and true God. But in the unity of the Godhead, there are three co-eternal and co-equal persons the same in substance, but distinct in substance. Subsistent. Subsistence. J.I. Packer said, We give praise to one God in three persons. Trinitus is a Latin word meaning threeness. Christianity rests on the doctrine of the Trinity. The threeness, the tripersonality of God. Now, when you see things like that, of course, uh, that kind of blows our mind, does it not? And if you look on the back of your paper, you should have a diagram. Uh, that particular diagram is a little different from the one that I have before me because it adds the creation, creator in it, which is certainly true, of uh, the creator, <coughs> the Godhead. Uh, the one you have, Brittany got from the Answers in Genesis. So if you've been teaching that one, you've seen this particular model, uh, which is great. So notice, one God, and He is God the Father, God the Son, 
God the Holy Spirit, but the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. Now, can you wrap your mind around that? But that is the complexity of the doctrine of the Trinity. And so, of course, I've supplied you with your chart of of theology proper, the Trinity, one essence, three persons, Let me read you those verses of Scripture. We want to ground everything in the Word of God. So if you'll take your copy and look, 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. That's one example. And then you should know Matthew 28, 19 through 20, especially if you've taken uh, our new members class. If you took it this past week, you certainly will remember it. And notice the emphasis in the text, Matthew 28, 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And then we can talk about the deity of the Father. Let's do a couple of those. John 6, 27. The deity of the Father, verse 27 of John's Gospel, chapter 6. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him God the Father has set His seal. So there's a reference to God the Father. Uh, Galatians, if you don't get to these, and I read them before you get there, just you've got them on your handout. I just think it does good to read the Word of God, don't you? And ground everything that we say in the scripture. It's easy for us to say, well, the Bible says, but then we, where is that? We go, I don't know. So, but we're going to show you Galatians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me. So, there's no question. Uh, there, are, there are hundreds, I could give you hundreds, if you wanted them, of uh, references to God the Father being God. And now the deity of the Son, John 1, 1, and, and many of you know this verse. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we know this is the divine rationale of the uh, Logos of God. And then you say, well, how do we know that's Christ or the Father? Actually, it's Christ. In the beginning was the Word. Because verse 14 tells us, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We see that the Son of God, the Word, eternal Word of God, was made flesh. Uh, John 8, 57. What do y'all know about John's gospel that is not like the other gospels? Like 90% of it, right? Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptics because 90% of everything in Matthew, Mark, and Luke are synonymous. But John, 90% is unique to itself. John 8, 57. The Bible says... So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. He's saying he's equal to God, right? So they picked up stones to throw at him. You know, you've heard some liberal scholars say, Well, Jesus wasn't saying he's God. Well, it sounds like to me they wanted to kill him for it. So I think it's pretty obvious that Jesus was claiming to be God. Uh, how about the deity of, of the Spirit of God? We'll just go with one. 
Acts chapter 5, 3 through 9. Y'all know how to find that book? Acts chapter 5, 3 through 9. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land while it remained yours? Let's see, why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You've not, you have not lied to man, but to God. You see, it's putting spirit of God before, together with lying to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and a great fear came upon all that heard it. Let's see. Okay, there's no other reference to the end of that verse. But again, there are multiple times in the Word of God when it speaks of, for instance, the giving of the gifts of the Spirit. Uh, it in multiple places, it tells us that God, the Holy Spirit, gives you your spiritual gifts. In other places, it says the Father has sovereignly given your gifts. And in other places, it says God the Son, who is God, has sovereignly given the gifts as well. So the biblical support in the Old Testament, there are declarations and assumptions of the unity of God about the numerical oneness and uniqueness. And just write some of these down, okay, for the sake of time, and you can look them up. Uh, Exodus 20. 2 through 3, Exodus 20, 2 through 3, Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, and that's the Shema, right? Behold, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Remember this as well. The Bible says early on, let us make man. If no one existed except God, who's the us? Well, it's speaking of the plurality of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And we know that Jesus said, it says of Jesus in Colossians that he made the worlds. Uh, it says in John 1 that nothing was made that was not made by the Son. So we see the creating work, creating work of the Lord. Isaiah 44, 8. Okay, so we're seeing unity, the unicity of God in that one in the Old Testament. Now, how about... Uh, teaching on the plurality of God. Well, there's the word Elohim, which is the plurality of God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That would be Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-3. There are the plural pronouns of Genesis 1-26, 3-22, and 11-7, and also Isaiah 6, verse 8. There is the image of God in human beings, Genesis 1, 27. And of course, there are multiplicity of other Old Testament arguments that would hold to a Trinitarian belief. Unity, yet three persons. How about the New Testament? Again, there are declarations of the unity of God, that He is one, found in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 4 and 6. 1 Corinthians 8, 4, comma, 6. And then 1 Timothy 1, 17. And 2, 5 through 6. And then there are affirmations of the threeness within God. So here's what I'm trying to get you to understand. In the Old Testament, there's the unity of one God, but three persons. And even in the New Testament, there's the emphasis on one God but yet the plurality of the persons. So the affirmation of the threeness within God would be at the baptism of Jesus. Y'all remember that? Mark chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. Mark 1, 10 through 12. How about in the Christian baptismal formula? Matthew 28, 19. That's why your pastor says, for we are uh, buried with Christ through baptism, raised to walk in the of life, we talk about Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Why? Because that's what we're reminded of in Matthew 28. I baptize you in the name of the... That's the Trinitary, uh, Trinitarian approach or baptismal formula. Uh, there are many benedictions and prayers that show the threeness within God, such as 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14. And Ephesians 3, 14 through 17. So at the baptism of Jesus, we see the threeness within God. 
In the baptismal formula we see it. In benedictions and prayers we see it. How about in the works of God when He begins to perform something? We see the Spirit, we see the Father, we see the Son. John 20, 21 through 22. Jesus in John 20, 21 says, As the Father has sent me, so send I you. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 6. That's an interesting one. That's always been a text that kind of grabs you around the throat and gets your attention. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. Now most scholars will tell you that the reason Paul started off this way is because the Corinthians were practicing ecstatic utterances and saying all kind of things that they were not sure they were saying. And uh, Paul says you could be calling Jesus a curse and not even know it because of your babblings. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one's speaking in the Spirit of God. Think about that. The Trinitarian approach ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say that Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Man, I like to say Jesus is Lord, don't y'all? Right? Uh, interesting. And then now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And then he's going to emphasize the Trinitarian approach to the giving of the gifts. All right, in certain relationships, John 14, isn't that an awesome text? Uh, in, my, in my Father's house there are many mansions, if it were not so. I go to prepare a place for you, if it were not so, I would have told you. Uh, you see John 14, uh, 16 through 21. You see in relationship with the Father and Son in John 26, 15, 26. How about John 17 in his high priestly prayer? Lord, restore the glory that we had from the beginning. How did the Son have that? Because Jesus is no Johnny come lately, right? He's the Son of God eternally. For eternity, he's in the Trinity, yet he became flesh. So, the Father and the Son and Spirit are distinct from one another, yet there is one God in unity. Okay? Now, uh, let me conclude Wow, uh, by showing you some dangers that have crept in to uh, when you would not believe the Trinity. Uh, or you would believe it falsely or, or deny that Trinity exists. You come up with what, I know, this and a cup of coffee, this and 25 cents to get your coffee at Brahms when we're done. But the term is called monarchianism. Okay? What that is, mono equals one, arche ruler, one person, one God. A second and third century heresy that denies the doctrine of the Trinity, maintaining that the only true God has always existed as one person, not three persons, the teaching exists today in two forms. Modalism, which is the view that holds that God exists as one person who is revealed in history in different modes using different names. In other words, God just comes in modes. He can be the Father, He can be the Son, and He can be the Spirit, but use different names. Therefore, the Father was born at Bethlehem. You can say that. Crucified at Calvary. The Father was actually crucified. But at the same time, he was called Jesus. Do you know that that's currently taught by T.D. Jakes? He's a heretic anyway, but he also believes in modalism, United Pentecostal Church. So you didn't know that because we don't think about things like that, and we don't know what to listen for, but he's a modalist. And then there's dynamic monarchianism. This heresy teaches that Jesus is not God, but a special man who became or was adopted as the Son of God, usually taught or thought to have occurred prior to Genesis creation or at his baptism. Another slight issue, currently taught today by Jehovah Witnesses. Okay? They believe in dynamic monarchianism, that Jesus wasn't the Son of God, and if he became God at all, he was generated later, or adopted at his baptism, which is a heresy. Okay? Trinitarianism is three persons, one God. That's the biblical view of God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, God the Son, are all three separate persons who have always existed as one true God. God the Father, 
God the Son and the Holy Spirit are not three gods, nor are they three names of the same person. One God, three persons. Distinct persons. One God. I know that blows your mind, but that's because it's the Trinity, right? Do you know the Bible never says the word Trinity? But the bulk of the revelation of God given to, in this, in, in, given to us in His Word, there's no way around the orthodox belief that God exists in one but yet in three distinct persons. And then there's tritheism. That's the belief that the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit are three separate gods. This is actually a form of polytheism. And this is belief is more than belief that there's more than one God. And you know who teaches that today? Mormonism. It's actually a thoroughly polytheistic belief system. They believe that the Father was once a man that evolved into fatherhood. They believe the Son was a man that evolved. And thus, that's how they believe that you can get your celestial underwear. I call it the fruit of the dooms. No, okay. The fact is, they believe that you, if you played your cards right and did everything right, you could become a god. So Mormonism is polytheistic. It is not Christian at all. Do not ever let a Mormon tell you that they're Christian. They're not. All you have to do is start asking about the Son of God. All you have to do is start asking pointed questions, and you'll find out quickly that they do not believe in the Christian God the way the Bible teaches it. And so there are alternatives out there to the Trinity that are wrong and usually lead, of course, people in heretical uh, lines of thinking. All right? I know that was uh, like hitting you with a shotgun. But I'll take a couple of questions if you have them. Just two. No, I'm kidding. Any questions tonight? I know that was more like an academic class, but you know what, folks? Sometimes you need to hear that. Sometimes you need to be challenged a little bit. So take that uh, handout and hold on to it. And know that we live in times today where uh, there are a lot of beliefs out there that claim to be Christian that are not. Oh, any questions? Any comments? I mean, here's your chance. Okay. Uh huh. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's true. Yep, because that, uh huh. Mm-hmm. Amen. Mm-hmm. Amen. That's exactly right. Faith cometh by hearing. Again, the Christ event is the, is the center of it all. For us to understand the biblical argument of the existence of God uh, because of who Jesus Christ is. Who he said he was, who he is, what he did, uh, where he reigns today. Uh, he's coming back, right? That all, the Christ event is the central cog fully in understanding even the existence of God from our perspective. Because of who we are in Christ. Yes, sir. Well, I think, obviously, number one, the Bible teaches it, right? And then the heresies that are involved. Uh, number one, if Jesus Christ is not the eternal Son of God, then He could not be your Savior, right? So you're, you're in a mess right there because Yahweh saves was the Old Testament connotation. And then we had the fulfillment of Yahweh God, the personal God, coming in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, condescending from heaven, putting on human flesh, being fully God and fully man. So just, just the principle of the eternality of the Son does away totally with the ability for God to save if Jesus is not the Son of God and if the Son of God is not eternal. Okay? When it comes to the Holy Spirit of God, well, you know, just common sense, when the Bible addresses Him, as God, the Spirit, or the Lord, the Spirit, then it would be a heresy 
uh, not to believe in the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And obviously, I don't think many people argue about the Father. Of course, they could, I guess, except for Mormons. Uh, keep in mind a principle that's important is the principle of subordination. And I think that's something we all need to think about because here in the Godhead, you got God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Jesus came to this earth saying, Not my will, but thine. So there's distinctiveness of will right there. That the, that the Son must submit himself to the Father, and he did that willingly even though he was co-eternal with the Father. And then always in the Word of God, the Holy Spirit is seen submitting to the Father and the Son. And then for an analogy to live with on earth, God gave us the husband and the wife. Total equality of personhood, but differing function and role, right? I.e., he gave us a difference in the church of the living God, where men are supposed to lead in the teaching and preaching of the word, and women are supposed to learn in submissiveness. That's not an inferiority. Again, go back to the Trinity. We're talking about divine order and function, not equality. So the Trinity is such a magnificent tool to think about in regard to even our roles that we have in church life. Okay, is that good enough? I mean, I might have, if you, if you have a particular question. But the main reason is you, you need to get the Trinity right because the Bible teaches clearly three in one, one God, three persons distinctly, and that all of them are God. And if you mess around with any of them uh, to move away from their ultimate deity or their divine nature, then, of course, you're in a mess. You, know, you move away theologically from center. Yes, sir. Now, what do you mean? Well, there's a whole lot of different angles that I'm thinking of once you say that. Now, are you talking about initial salvation? Yes. Exactly. Well, you can't be saved without submission. Initially... And then in your life, as a believer, uh, you know, uh, the, the text we read, Hebrews 11, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And that faith is not a virtue in you. It's, a vir it's, it's, it's given to you by God as a gift. And so that faith, uh, particularly there, has an article with it, the faith. <laughs> so the faith uh, is what... Uh, without the faith, it is impossible to please God. For you, I think the text says, for you must believe that he is, and he's a rewarder for those who diligently seek him. So, uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, uh, our, our, our initial salvation begins with submitting to the Lordship of Christ and trusting Jesus only for salvation, and then our walk with the Lord is always a walk of faith, not by sight, in submitting ourselves to the Lord and his will. Yes, ma'am. Uh-huh. That's right. That's right. Uh, I do believe it's when you're baptized, but baptized in the Holy Spirit. <laughs> and I believe it's synonymous with salvation. Uh, Ephesians 1.13 says, The day you heard the gospel, the word of truth, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. 1 Corinthians 12, 11 says, if you do not have my spirit, you're not my child. So I went to Pentecostal school and played basketball for a couple of years in college. And I would ask them, so if you say you're saved today, but you're waiting on the Holy Spirit, how does that work? Because the text says, if you don't have my spirit, you're not my child. So, you know, you could just get them all bum-fuzzled and been out of shape. But the fact is, God never gives us himself in parts. And for people who, welcome home, brother. You made it. Good deal. Amen. So that, that's kind of uh, 
I, I think we're missing, they missed the boat. And for some people who say, well, something changed in my life, and I don't know if I received the Holy Spirit then or what, I just think you figured out what you had. Okay? I just think you begin to yield. Because baptism of the Spirit and being filled with the Spirit are not the same thing. Baptism is infusion into the family of God. In other words, you can't be saved without being baptized by the Holy Spirit. And that's what infuses you into the family of God. But filling of the Spirit is a continuous action verb, meaning that you're being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's not like pulling up to a gas tank and putting more gas in each day. It's a control issue of allowing the Holy Spirit to control your life. We like to say being filled with the Holy Spirit is not you getting more of the Spirit. It's the Spirit of God getting all of you. And so, uh, yes, I think baptism is synonymous with, with, with your salvation. In the day you hear the gospel, the word of truth, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. All right, any others? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Amen. Well, there's yeah, that's right. There's no there's no possibility of approaching the Father apart from the Son. Yeah. That's exactly. Amen. That model prayer, hallowed be, set aside as holy, you know, and yeah, absolutely. All that is good stuff to think about the Trinity. And um, Jesus, uh, Colossians says, all the fullness of the Godhead bodily was in the Son of God, was in Jesus. So, absolutely. Good point. Thanks, Andy. Others? Well, this was fun, wasn't it? You understand all this stuff, Elsie? <laughs> She, after this is over, she'll say, no, I didn't. <laughs> All right. Okay. James, everything go well? Yes. I'm glad y'all... We had 32 kids, and we had two decisions. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, we're glad to have you back. We got a lot for you to do, brother. We got it stacked up. James loves to say rack it and stack it. That's what we did while you were gone. We racked it and stacked it so you could work on it when you got back. No, I'm kidding. Okay, let's close in prayer. Natalie's probably getting nervous. Y'all want to start your, your teacher's meeting. Let's pray. Father, you're good to us. And Lord, um, uh, we stop and we pause and we think about the divine trinity. And Lord, it blows our minds. Lord, it, it blows our mind to think about you speaking the wor a word and creating the world. But Lord, we know you did it. And we thank you for it. And Lord, uh, would you seal the, uh, the principles of faith in our heart, Lord, the uh, correct doctrine so that we will live right. And Lord, just help us to learn. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.